This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please be sure to subscribe and share with friends and family. To help support this ministry, please visit allentempleamecom slash donate. Thank you for listening. The scripture that was read came from the book of Acts, the fifth chapter, and the reading was from the first to eleventh verse. And allow me to just lift up verse 9, which says, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Let me just say it right. How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? This morning, I want to talk to you about giving. Giving. Now, to be sure, this is not going to be some appeal to you for you to give more to help the church. Please don't think for one minute that that's what I'm doing. I don't, I'm not going to talk to you about you giving more or even try to guilt you into doing more than what you already do because we as the church might have a need. That's not what I'm about to do. I'd like to talk to you about giving in the context of the biblical perspective on giving. How does the Bible really talk about giving and how are we to understand it? And then you can draw your own conclusions at the end. Fair enough? So my goal is to make you understand the concept of giving so that when you give or whatever you decide to give, you have a clear conscience that will not be overcome by you feeling guilty every time you give. Because what people, don't, what people don't often say or admit is even though you know you give to the church, there's a part of you that feels a little guilty. And you carry that guilt. We don't often say it. We don't often talk about it. But I want to kill that spirit. Whatever that spirit is that makes you feel a little guilty or maybe even make you feel a little bit of shame because you, you, you think you're not following the mandate of God, we're killing that spirit today. So I'm going to talk about giving, not to guilt or shame you, but to really make sure that you understand the biblical perspective of what giving really is and what it's all about. Giving, as you know, is a form of not only worship, but it's also to be seen and understood as an act of reverence to God. That's really what it is. And because it's an act of reverence to God, your giving, whatever you give, automatically becomes holy. If you give a lot, or you give just enough, or if you give little, according to what you think in your mind, listen to me very carefully. The fact that you give something, anything, makes that thing automatically holy unto God. Doesn't matter. So, so people feel like I should give more, and you probably should. People feel like I should, you know, I'm giving too much, and some people do. But the fact of the matter is, most people don't give at all. So the question is, if most people don't give at all, then they have not yet tapped into the holiness of God. Are you tracking with me? So I'm not talking about what and the amount you give. I'm talking about whatever you give. It becomes holy unto God. Wow. Your giving is personal. But your giving must also be understood in the context of the community in which you live. Many of us, particularly in our community, we don't have it like that. We really don't have it. And y'all understand what I'm saying. We don't have it like that. So every now and then, we try to do a little something because we want God to know that we do believe in his holiness. 
whatever it is. And I want to make sure, and again, I'm saying this over and over again because I feel this passionately in my heart, that many of us are stuck in a place of maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe I should be doing more. Maybe I'm guilty. Maybe I'm shamed. Maybe, whatever the maybes may be, I'm saying kill that spirit. Guilt and shame has no place in the kingdom of God. Those are spirits and they need to die. And they will die today. So we want to reflect on that a little bit. The issue of giving to the church is a most challenging and dare I say a very uncomfortable subject for many people. Talking about giving is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because, for, for, because people don't always feel like they have the money to give. You want to see the church do well, but you can't, you don't have enough, so you feel uncomfortable. Sometimes people are uncomfortable because they feel they can't give as much or as well as other people. You're uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable because you might have had a bad church experience. You're uncomfortable because you may not understand the concept of giving. But you're also sometimes uncomfortable, and I'm talking real talk, because you're unemployed. You don't have the money. But in addition to being personally uncomfortable, sometimes people don't choose to give because they don't trust the pastor or the church. They think someone else will take care of what's going on. And God always raises up somebody to do what needs to get done, however it gets done. That's the kind of faith that we have, even though we sometimes wonder why it's taking so long. Sometimes we don't give because the church, you think, have enough money. Well, they just bought cameras and they got a light, so they have enough. You give sometimes, not to our church, because sometimes you're supporting other ministries as well, other things that you believe in, which is legitimate. People sometimes don't give because you don't agree with how they use the money. Sometimes you see a pastor driving a Mercedes and you're wondering to yourself, that's where my money's going. Meanwhile, the pastor has, is working four other jobs because the church he's involved in can't necessarily support his family and his lifestyle. You don't know. We don't know. Some people don't give because they're not committed to the vision of the church. We talk about, we, we talk about here that we are conforming to Christ and transforming the world. And you all know the work that we're doing in places like Guatemala and the things that we're trying to get ourselves involved in because the kingdom of God is so much bigger than the four square miles of the city of Mount Vernon. So we have a bigger vision than we can even afford to fulfill. But God has placed it in our heart. But sometimes people don't give because, and this is the tragedy, they just don't believe God. And they don't believe what the Bible says. It's a tragedy. God says do this and we choose to do whatever we want. Simply because eh, the Bible is an old book. And maybe, just maybe, I don't know. Might not be true. Whatever the reasons are. So with the text in mind and as I draw from other areas of the Bible. I want to talk today about giving. And again, not to make you feel guilty. But just so that we understand it. And then you draw your own conclusions. And my title for this sermon then is quite simply, For Such a Price as This. For Such a Price as This. Let us pray. Father, this is an uncomfortable subject. But many of our people are in bondage. Can't come out from under this rubble because of fear, guilt, and shame. And so, Spirit of the living God, as I invite you now to speak through me, help me, Lord, to be pastoral in my approach. Help me, Lord, to understand that your people are good people, 
that they want always to do the right things, but sometimes the difficulty is how we feel about ourselves. And so, Father, help me to be sensitive, to be understanding, to be compassionate. But most of all, through this message, help me, Lord, to be loving. For you are love. And you love every single person who hear these words now and forevermore. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get to our text, I'd like to establish some foundational things about giving um, as seen in some key areas of scripture. Alistair Begg, if some of you have listened to him on the radio, and I like to listen to him a lot, in one of his messages did a phenomenal job of discussing the pattern of giving in the Bible, and, and, I, and I drew from some of his exposition in certain places, but, 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 but I want to also lay out some basic truths. When we survey the Old Testament and the New Testament on the topic of giving, we can make a few distinct observations. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what giving looks like in the Old Testament. Then I'm going to talk about what giving looks like in the New Testament. We're going to get to our text, and then we'll wrap it up. Okay? In the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Genesis, the second chapter and the eighth through to the ninth verses, we find these words, very familiar words, and I want you all to stay with me. It says here at verse 8, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we jump to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man and he said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The thing to take away from this text before we go anywhere is that every single tree belongs to God. The tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of the trees that were pleasing, every single tree belongs to God. But God had placed two trees, two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees he planted in the garden. God offered to man the privilege of eating from all of the trees in the garden. But the specific instruction was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you shall surely die. Now notice here, church, that the text says when. It didn't say if. It didn't say if. The text said when. Some translations of the Bible say for in the day which conveys the same message that it was not a question if Adam would eat from the tree, it was a question of when you were going to eat from the tree. So God knows the end from the beginning. Yes, sir. 
God already knew that Adam would eat from the tree. And I can prove that to you because the reason why God knew that Adam was going to eat from the tree, because right next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God placed the tree of life. Right next to it. So it was already prepared for what was. But the way that I want you to understand this text is that God wanted man's, your and my, obedience. It did not matter if the tree or it was a plant or if God said, don't lay down on that patch of grass over there. It didn't matter. All that matters was whether or not man was going to be obedient to the commandment and the instruction of God. God wants our obedience. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, what you think, what you think you don't know. The thing that God wants from you and I, aside from, his, from loving him, is our obedience. You see, obedience to someone is the highest form of showing and expressing love and respect. When, when, when my children obey my words, and they do what I tell them, not only does their obedience protect them from harm, because as a parent, we know what's best for our children, but it also demonstrates their love for their parents. This is why Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience is always better than sacrifice, but be clear, when you are obedient, it's an experience of love. Disobedience makes it questionable. If you do what I ask, and it's a good thing, you are literally telling me you love me. Wow. Think about that. Have you ever heard that before? I mean, the text is clear. If you love me, keep my commandments. What's the corollary? If you don't love me, do whatever comes to your mind. Make it plain. Right? Children listen to their parents as a way of saying, I love you. Disobedience says, I don't. Can I make it any more simpler? <laughs> so from the Garden of Eden, God established the idea that while man has access to all of what God provided, God commanded us to set aside something for him that was to be considered not only forbidden, but holy. In fact, this is what it means to be consecrated. This is what it means to be set apart for God's own use and purposes. When we get to the annual conference, we've got ministers that's going to be ordained. What does that mean? Set apart for the purposes of God. Holy. So you, can't, you can no longer function the way you want to or the way you did in the world. To put on this robe and to say, listen, I am, I am going to be used by God for his purposes is a way of me saying, God... I am yours and you are mine. I am now holy, consecrated, and set apart for your good purposes and pleasure, whether or not I know what that pleasure is. My obedience to God is an expression of my love for God. That's why I wear the robe, because I am not my own. So, so critical was this command that God stated in the day that you eat from this tree, or may I say it this way, in the day that you consume what has been set apart for God, you shall surely die. The pronouncements of death for not eating, per se, it was not because they ate the fruit. It was because they disobeyed 
the command. Do you see the difference? Because they could eat anything, but they disobeyed the command. Such is the price that was to be paid. By being obedient to the command, man would enjoy perpetual life of peace in God. Wow. To coin the term used in the Old Testament, you all know the term they use in the Old Testament, which is the tithe. Now, now <laughs> let me be clear. This tree in the midst of the garden that man should not eat, that is the first tithe. And the tithe was not instituted at this point in the garden. That The term itself was not really instituted. We just, as preachers, like to say that that's the first tithe. But the first time that the tithe was, in, was, was actually instituted in the Bible, in the Old Testament, was actually when Abraham met with Melchizedek after this war. And when he met Melchizedek, Abraham gave him a tenth of all of what he had plundered. And that was the very first tithe. We don't know why Abraham did it to Melchizedek. He just did it. And from that point on, giving 10% giving of all that he had, that became the tithe. So the bottom line is, the obedience is the key, whatever your consecration may be. The tithe was introduced then. And the point is, is that when you think of the tithe in the Old Testament, it was something that was a little bit more than just, say, giving 10%. Now, now church, y'all got to stay with me for a little bit. The tithe was actually broken up into a three-year cycle. Listen to me carefully. Every year, a portion was separated from what the people did and earned in the field, whether it's grain, wine, or oil. But unlike other offerings, they had these offerings that were not consumed in the tabernacle like other offerings. This was special. Every three years, they would do this. And every year, they would also set apart for the Levites. Now, you know who the Levites were. They were part of the tribe that didn't have no land. They didn't get no land from nobody. God says, you are my priest, you are set apart, and you're going to make sure the temple is holy. So whatever the people would bring is the only way that the priests would survive. They can't live. They're not farming. So unless the people brought something into the house, the priests would be unhealthy. <laughs> He'd be a skinny priest. So my point is, the giving was not to say, hey, listen, I'm giving to God and this is all I'm doing with it. No, it's saying that I'm setting this apart. It's holy for God, but it's also investing in what God has set apart as holy. You're saying, God, you have these people, these church people, these pastors, these Levites, and you've set them apart. And the only way that they're going to survive is if the people believe your word. Because unless the people do what God has asked them to do in obedience, those people are not going to last long in the temple. Believe me when I tell you. But God set it up that way. Why? I do not know. But the only thing I know is that this church is standing on this corner, still praying for people, still loving God's people, still trying to feed God's people, still trying to advance the kingdom because you say that you believe in the holiness of this building. You believe in what God is doing here. And so you don't want to see it stop. And by doing that, you are participating in the holiness of God. So... So the tithe was the basic pattern of giving in the Old Testament, and it was structured as a way of supporting the government and the nation of Israel. This means that for the people of the Old Testament, it was an obligation. They loved their God. Believe me, those Israelites, they loved their God. And they would not want to see the priests come in to consecrate anything 
and his robe was dirty because he didn't have enough money to get it washed. I'm making it plain. Do not think for one minute, church, that we are here by accident. Thank God for the few people that still believe God enough to want to see God's work continue. I'm making it plain. Some people say, well, I don't really care, and, you know, he's just preaching. But what I'm telling you is the very thing that has probably kept you out of harm's way more than anything else. Because what God sets apart, what you set apart as holy, God will always honor. He will always honor it. He cannot go against himself or his word. So if you want to participate in the holiness of God and the fullness of what God has, then you do what God has asked you to do. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So that's the Old Testament, and we're kind of clear. So let's talk a little bit about the New Testament, and we're going somewhere. To be sure, the word tithe doesn't appear in the New Testament. The apostles and all of them, they don't, you don't find the word. So people often ask the question, well, tithing is an Old Testament thing. It's not a New Testament thing. All right, people like to say that as a way of saying, I don't have to give. Let's call it what it is. I don't have to do that because we're in the New Testament. All of a sudden, people have become experts on the New Testament when it comes to giving. You're not an expert on anything else, but you do know that. Yeah, it's in the Old Testament. Where did, what seminary did you study that in? Right? It's just, it's just the truth. So the New Testament, to be clear, is neither for or against tithing. So then how are we to proceed? How are you and I to understand giving in this context? Well, first thing I'll tell you is God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's be clear. The second thing is the sustenance of the temple came from the people. That hasn't changed. We don't have any 501c3 organization that is with a building project that we're getting income from to sustain a church. We don't have that. I'm talking about our church, Allen Temple. The only thing we have is you. So every time you decide, you know what, I'm going to give a dollar to the church, we can say hallelujah because that's a dollar more than we had yesterday. Right? Because we, and I said it at the beginning of the message, we're truly grateful. Because if you didn't give your dollar, we wouldn't have any. It's just that real, right? So I know that we all have needs, but the real issue becomes, how can I give what I do not have? That's real. How can we give to God and to support his temple if we don't have it? You don't have it. You don't have it. You can't make it. You can't manufacture it. You can't just make it pop out of nowhere. How can I give when I don't have what to give? Is God asking me to deprive myself of the very thing that's going to help me to survive just so we can do what? Pay an organist? Does God want me to suffer and not pay my bills so that we can pay a drummer or a preacher? Or pay a light bill for, or, or, or fix a church? Is that what God is asking me? And here's my challenge, church. This is what we think about. You may not say it, but that's the truth. Because you're not going to put your needs secondary to something that you don't necessarily believe or buy in. But can I tell you a secret? The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. And I have, I have lived long enough, and my wife is my witness... To say that there were times where we looked at the bills and we said, you know what? This got to be paid, but we got we, we to gotta trust God on this one. And we went the route of God 
and said, let's just figure out what's going to happen next with that. And without fail, I am telling you the truth, we have never been in the place of want. Somehow, it finds a way. The testimony of this church is that, you know, we have, we have stewards, not calling no names, who literally cry when we can't make our assessments. Not calling no names. Literally cry. Right? Not because of anything other than the love of God in the heart. That does not want to see God's ministry and his temple and his work fall to naught. But we have had to say to all those folks, we understand, but God is. And he has always showed up at just the right time. Every single time. That is our testimony. So we don't worry. <laughs> we'll cry a little. <laughs> but we'll suffer knowing that God always will come true. So, so those are good questions. So let's now turn to our text. And I want to I hurry along and get to the point. It says in Acts, the fourth chapter and 32, it says this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you hearing that? The people gave all they had. They had on one, of mind, one mind to give. But the apostles kept on preaching and testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Pastor, Reverend Marriott, keep preaching the word of God. Keep telling the people about Jesus. Listen, don't worry about what it looks like. Keep preaching. Keep lifting him high. Don't trust me. Trust the process. Stay the course. Keep telling them about Jesus because while they may be struggling right now, a resurrection is in their future. There is going to be a moment where I have to honor my holiness because obedience is better than sacrifice. So, so, so he says, keep preaching. And, and, and here's the text. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. Translation, if God wants you to give more, he'll give you more to give. He'll give you the more to give. But what's the problem, church? When you get the more, what do you think it's for? You. You pray to God and say, Lord, I wish I could give a little more. And God gives you the more. So you could give more, but then you're like, eh, eh, nah. Let me keep it for myself. So the people would bring all of their gifts and lay it at the apostles' feet. So here we see contextually that the people had a heart to give to the apostles because they trusted the apostles. They, they trusted the ministry of the church. We've been here now pastoring this church for a better part of 10 years. And I don't think from the day we came for the first time that we are any different than how we've been in terms of how we treat the ministry. I don't believe that. I don't think that. But you never know. But what's my point? My point is we've been making much of Jesus 
ever since we've been here. Yeah. Right? So, so, so the text says they were of one heart and one mind, meaning they were in agreement with the vision and the mission of the church. It says that they recognized that their possessions were not their own. Right? This is like it was when Adam was in the garden. He had access to all of the trees because everything got owned. They shared and willingly. Right? If something happens, I can tell you right now, if Sister Precious were to call and say, I have something going on in my life, Pastor, can you help? Believe me, we're going to find a way to make it work. You all have probably experienced, Sister Yvette, when something's going on with somebody, we find a way to rally around to make it happen. Guess what? That's the community. We're not only going to pray for you, but we're going to find a way to make sure that your needs get met in some way. The question then becomes, are you doing the same for others? When you hear we pray the names of the people, can you pray for them too in your own time? We are a community. We work and build on each other. We're not just saying people's name simply because they asked us and they have a need. We are appealing to the community because the fervent prayers of the righteous availeth much. And when God hears the cry of not just the pastor, but all the people, God responds. So the quickest way to your deliverance and your need is to pray for someone else. Many of us, we want the pastor to pray. You want Reverend Nephew to pray. You want Reverend Ken to pray. And it's okay. But sometimes when you get better, on, can you pray for somebody else too? Come on, the Bible tells us that the apostles continually and persistently prayed. And by the way, I, 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 I had the opportunity to listen to noonday prayer this past week. And I heard prayers. I, I, I had to sit in my car at the hospital and just listen to the saints of God pray. That's what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't even join noonday prayer, but want to hear your prayers from the pulpit, maybe you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. We don't set it up. The missionaries don't set it up just because it's, they want to hear their voices. They are praying to a God that can make a difference in the lives of the saints. When you find that you are in need of prayer, join noonday prayer. Somebody will pray for you as you pray for somebody else. We are a community and that's how we stand strong. Locked arm with each other. Not one getting everything, but that we all share among ourselves. The other thing the text tells us that God began to work in all the people. What did the text say? Powerfully. I don't know about you, but I need God to work powerfully in my life, powerfully in my home, power, powerfully in my relationships, powerfully on my job, and powerfully in this church. Yeah. And it says, from the time, from time to time, those that owned land and houses sold them and brought things to the apostles because they could. And then the apostles distributed whatever surplus they had. My prayer to God is that we get to the place where People give so much to the church that we have to now look and say, okay, what are we going to do with this? Who do we know? And just spread it out all. In. You know like how the government gives you back your tax returns? I have always prayed that we set up such a system that after you've done all the giving in the year, all of your giving, and we've, done, and we've met all the needs of the church, that whatever surplus gets redistributed back to the people. I would love to have the similar system. And it can happen, but it's going to take faith. So the environment in the early church, let me hurry on, was that the giving was regular, the giving was proportionate, and the giving was sacrificial. 
Let's finally end up now in our text. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. I'm in Acts 5, 1 through 11. But he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, hey, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart so that you would lie to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What is Peter saying? You decide, okay, I'm going to sell this piece of property for a certain amount of money because I want to give this to the church. But I decided that I'm not going to give all of it. You first decided that you were going to give this to the church. So, 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 so Peter says, what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to human beings. You have not lied to the pastor. You have not lied to the stewards or the trustees. You, you, you've lied to God. Remember what I told you before? When you decide in your heart and your mind to set aside something as holy for God, it's holy for God. Don't touch it. It's in the midst of the garden, that tree. Don't touch it. Once it's set apart, don't touch it. So if he sold the property for $1,000 and you, you purpose in your heart that you're going to give this $1,000 to God, don't just now say, all right, let me just give 900 Because it was set apart, it was holy, and now you went and touched it like Adam and Eve did in the garden. The same thing. And, and did God say you have to send 1000 did God make you? No, he did not. You have purposed it in your heart. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So what you have purposed in your heart, whatever the what you decided has now become holy. Holy. And, and, and it's consecrated and it's set apart for God's business. Now, I like to think of that if you sell it for 1000 and you decide to give only 900 that hundred that you save for yourself is what we call a just-in-case offering. It's a just-in-case, right? If you live like a just-in-case, trust me, you don't have much faith. If you are setting apart a little something just-in-case tomorrow don't work out, you don't have any faith. I know that it doesn't sound nice, but what I'm telling you is just-in-case faith don't work with God. You're either all of it or none of it. That's God. So in the end, in the end, Ananias and Sapphira did surely die when they chose to be disobedient to the command, not to touch the holy thing that God had set apart. My beloved, stewardship is a believer's acknowledgement of God's divine provisions and our response to the Lord Jesus Christ's redeeming grace. It's expressed here on earth through a life of giving and a commitment to the proper management of every resource God has entrusted to each and every one of your care. Let me make it plain. If you are a married person, God has entrusted you as a spouse to love and to give your spouse honor as a way of honoring the holiness of God. If you have children, God has given you the responsibility and the opportunity to offer unto him your care and your support of those children as a way of recognizing the holiness of God. 
You see what I'm saying? So every time you love your children or you love your wife or you love even your friends, you are expressing the holiness of God. Because you have now set apart even your heart as a part of offering a friendship to that person. Isn't that beautiful? So when we treat people as if they are nothing, meanwhile they were created in the image of God, you might as well walk to the Garden of Eden and pick another fruit and keep eating it. Because in the day that you treat people like, not like the way you like to be treated, then in that day you shall surely die. So when I'm talking about giving, what I'm saying is not really giving in the sense of give more money to the church. I'm saying give that part of you that recognizes that you are not your own. And that for every time you give love to someone, a person that might not feel very loved, a person that might not have it the way you have it, a person that might be cast aside, whatever the case may be, you are actually saying, I've set that person apart for the holiness of God, and therefore I'm going to honor that person by giving them my love. You can't come here, <laughs> you can't come to the church and hug the building. You know, you can't be like hugging, you know, outside and the rails. It, it, we don't feel that kind of love. <laughs> we think there's something that needs to be checked with you if you do that, right? You could come and you can hug Eve. You could come and hug. That's nice. But how you show love to God's house is going to be what? Through your gifts and your giving, your offering. That's how you do it. So the whole point of my sermon today is to show you that Again, it's not my intention to tell you that what you should give to support God's house or his kingdom should be more. I'm not here to tell you that you must bring 10% of your gross or of your net income and, you, and God will love you even more. It's not my plan to, to guilt you and make you feel like you're unworthy of God's grace because you should give more. But it is my intention to tell you that your giving needs to be proportionate to the God you say you love. I am telling you that. If you believe and say in your heart, I love God, then maybe, maybe for where you are in your life, a $25 a week giving is your, your best expression of your love for God. If that is so, then that's set apart and God will honor that. The question is, is that the truth in your heart? I'm just saying. But if you recognize that you are where you are because God has done amazing things in your life, protected you in ways you couldn't even imagine, covered your house, your children, your family in a way, then maybe a 20, and again, I'm just using this as a number, a $25 a week giving is the best expression of how you feel about God. Maybe. Maybe the tithe, 10% of your income is that number. Maybe. Maybe it's less. Maybe it's more. Who knows? But only you know. But whatever, whatever you have purposed in your heart, do not lie to the Holy Spirit. That's my message. And you're not saying that you're going to drop down and drop dead. But here's what I'm saying to you. Is that you're going to continue to carry that guilt and that shame because you're pretending you love God when really what you do is you only love what God can do for you when you need it. I don't just love God when it's good times. I especially love God in the tough times. We are all struggling in some way. Many of us know, many of you know, that our house got flooded and we, we're still wrestling through all of that trauma. But by the grace of God, we're still alive. We could have drowned. 
We hear the stories of people running for their lives in the Ukraine. That could have been our story. And it can still be our story, but for God. So what I'm saying to you is cultivate in your hearts. And again, I want you all to understand and hear my heart. Cultivate in your hearts that if I can love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and strength, and my neighbor as myself, then I will have been expressing and setting apart a holiness of God. That's what I'm saying. So your giving needs to be proportionate. It also needs to be regular and consistent. How many of you know that it would not be a nice day if you come here and the church is all closed up because we couldn't make ends meet? Then, you go, then what most people would do is say, well, well, let's find another church to not support. Let me find another church to not support. We are here because of your grace, your giving, your love for the ministry. And we are here because we receive that love and we receive that grace. And we are thankful to you for it. And we are truly honored by it. Because I take nothing for granted. Everything in this church, from this microphone to the lights to everything, is set apart for God's purposes. And guess what? So too are you. You are set apart for God's good pleasure and for God's good purpose. And my job as pastor is to make sure that you get the love from me as best as I can give it so that you'll never forget how much God loves you. Absolutely. Sometimes, as we said this morning, <clears throat> maybe I, I'm stuck at the like you for the moment. But I'm working my way towards the love you. <laughs> but I don't have that luxury. I have to love you whether you love me or not. Because I'm married to this ministry and I'm married to the Lord Jesus Christ. So finally, for many of us, there are things that we want in this life that we would pay just about anything for. I'm reminded of families that would make their appeals. You remember ISIS? You remember ISIS when they were beheading the journalists? And I remember that when the terrorists wanted these ransom and the families were petitioning the United States government to pay the ransom because they want their loved ones to come home. If that was your son, your daughter, your mother, your sister, your brother, your uncle, I personally, I could tell you the truth. I could care less about the policy of the United States government towards terrorists. You're going to find the money and you're going to bring my loved one home. I could care less. You can keep your, your, your principles because we're going to pay any amount for my loved ones to come home. How much are you willing to pay is the question for your, the safe return of your loved ones. Is there a number? You're going to go to $3.5 million and 75 cents and no more. Oh no, you're going to go as far as they ask because of your loved one. And you don't want the government to go, okay, we're going to pay the ransom of $3.5 million, but we're going to hold back 63 cents just in case. You want them to put all of it. You don't want a just in case offering. Well, there is a terrorist that has held you and your loved ones captive for a very long time. And his name is Satan. And he required a ransom so high that neither you or I could ever pay. 
But your heavenly Father set aside and consecrated his own son, Jesus Christ, who paid it all for the sins that you have committed, you are committing, and that you will commit. You are worth so much to God, and he loves you so much that all you need to do is just believe in him, and you shall have everlasting life. God did not hold back a little something for himself just in case. He didn't partially die. Just in case the people are not grateful. Let me, let me just let them pierce his hands and his feet. We're not going to pierce the side. Let me just do a little something. Jesus says, it is finished. And he gave up, he gave up the ghost. All of it for you and me. What am I telling you, church? That your giving needs to be proportionate. It needs to be consistent, but it also needs to be sacrificial. So whether you're an Old Testament or a New Testament or a No Testament, here is the true testament for God's soul of the world Amen. that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So every time that you tithe or give sacrificially to the house of God, particularly this church, you are in fact affirming your conviction and faith that Jesus did in fact die for your sins and mine and by his death. We have received unmerited favor and grace. In other words, Every good gift comes from God. And when you give sacrificially, it indicates your level of faith. And as your faith grows, it is demonstrated in the tangible way that you give. For such a price as this, that was the price that was paid when we first disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. May the Lord richly, richly bless you, my beloved.